0: Times roll by listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my good friend Rico Kasich for writing that song about his favorite pro wrestling podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I know that there are a lot of good wrestling podcasts out there, but are they wicked good? Nah. Stick to wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and we'll give you perhaps indeed. A Raw Bone Podcast. And before I forget, follow me on Twitter. Just put in John McAdam in the search engine. Two guys hitting each other with chairs. You're there. Help me with my march toward a million followers as that continues to pick up speed. Now I would like to bring on my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you this week?
1: Fantastic. And when you're done with that whole Raw Bone thing John was talking about, come on over to the Facebook page. You know what? I'm hurt. I really am offended now because every week I have to sit there and give you multiple reasons why you should be part of the Facebook group, and here we are again. We have to have the same discussion again and again. But if you were with the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page this week, you would have found out, was Nick Bockwinkle and Harley Race plotting against Bob Backlund in 1979? Did Backlund know? Does he know now?
0: You would be I was gonna say you would be aware of the accusation, but you would not know why, because hey, it's it's just something that was totally made up, but anyway.
1: Did France have circus wrestlers? The answer, (laughs) we. Can farmer burns stretching techniques help you grow six inches overnight? Will Carter or six inches taller, let's emphasize. Yes. Will Carter or Massey face Gorgeous George in Birmingham? What is the history of the big red X? Is Bruiser Brody bait for Oscars and did Bob Backlund win 40 years ago? All that plus John's results, um, some clippings, pictures, and uh, we also have the new YouTube uh, videos coming out for our YouTube page. And you get – so whenever the new YouTube, Brian uh, hits a link right there.
0: I would like to thank the Arcadian Vanguard Network for giving us that uh, big YouTube push. And speaking of the Facebook group, but wait, there's more. If you were part of this Facebook group, you you got the exact thing you've been looking for, which was my list of my favorite songs of 1977. And by the time this show drops... I will put up my favorite songs of 1978. So there you go. It's a Facebook group. You don't kind of have to stick to wrestling. We've talked football before on there. Now joining us this week, a good friend of mine. I just learned that he was on the Smoky Mountain Fan Week from 1994, where the bus was going 24, 25 miles an hour on an interstate. Sean Heimberger. Sean, he is. Thank you for coming on. How are you, man?
2: Doing well. Thanks for having me guys. Big fan.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh Sean, you are a you're from the Metro
2: Cleveland area, is that right? I am I'm actually I live in uh Hagerstown, Maryland. I'm formerly from Ohio, just a fan of all the Ohio teams.
0: Oh, all right, cool. And your brothers are an indie wrestler from the early nineties. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Uh he's been an indie wrestler, promoter, about everything you can think of in the independent wrestling business for I'm guessing since the early yeah early 90s uh, he is and I, i'm and this will probably sound uh biased but anybody that knows the two of us knows that it's not he is a guy that if he would have been a little born a little he was before his time he would have been so great in the territorial uh back in the territories he could have been somebody's booker he's got such a mind for this business uh and if he would have been just missed his mark and how things were in wrestling it, it's uh, real it, I really feel bad for him because he's brilliant.
0: What is his ring name?
2: Uh Shane Shadows. And uh I have his, heard of him. And his son wrestles as Simon Shadows.
0: Okay. All right. So this this past week ni- neither of our Sean's watched it, but we had this the WWE Survivor Series I did not watch NXT Sorry, WWE. That's what you get for putting on your show when Tennessee's playing Missouri. Uh, word is out that they had a War Games show, uh, a War Games match and they did a ridiculously dangerous spot which i have not watched yet um i guess wwe is just waiting for the inevitable to happen either someone gets like seriously hurt like draws level hurt or someone gets killed you know no no sense in changing anything before that happens um but anyway I still watch the WWE pay-per-views. Usually I do watch the NXT shows. Uh they have a character out called The Fiend. Um it started off really good and it's it's kind of ran its course quickly. I think by WrestleMania they should be getting rid of that character. I say the same thing about every WWF main brand pay-per-view that it, it was pretty it was good. It wasn't great, but it was wasn't a waste of 3 hours. Um Sha- Sean Goodwin was offended earlier today about the Facebook group, and we cannot go on with that. Sh- go on with this show without talking a little bit about Jim Cornette resigning from the NWA. Uh, this end, the NWA Power Show, which has two R's, is their gimmick is kind of it's an old school, um, what is it? Not an arena, it, it's a um. A studio show. Thank you. Um, and it, it always comes across to me a little bit weird. It always comes across as like a game show. I don't dislike it. I watched two episodes. It was fine. The best part about the show, in my opinion, was Jim Cornette. Um, but it I I got through two shows and I just wasn't interested in anything in watching anymore, frankly, because I have WWE Network and there are hundreds of hours of a studio show that features Rick Flair and Dusty Rhodes and Jim Cornette himself and Arn Anderson, Barry Windham, etc. And these are the guys I'm just I'm not gonna stop being interested in. Um, but anyway, Jim Cornette on this show, he Attempted to describe the strength and courage of Trevor Murdoch, uh, Dickie's kid, uh, during the episode. He said he's the only man I've ever known that can strap a bucket of fried chicken on his back and ride a motor scooter across Ethiopia. And I wish Jim had just said, like, ah, he's the only man I've ever known that can strap a bag of croissants on his back or some apple strudel, something without that connotation sean sean heimberger can i get your opinion on this
2: well i've i've heard, that's a line that stuck with me from the time he used it with big bubba rogers and yeah, he used
0: it multiple times with big bubba
2: and it's funny but you're absolutely right if he just changes what he puts on his back it all goes away yeah if he, if he it, that's all he has to do change the food item Yeah. It, and, exactly. and nobody has a problem with it at least i wouldn't think so
0: I, I would have thought it was even more funny because, you know, it's like, oh, here comes the racist joke, and Jim, like, kind of, I don't know, double-crosses us on that. Sean Goodwin, may may I have you share your thoughts with us?
1: I don't think anything's saving it, okay? I mean, start, starving our Ethiopian jokes ain't working anymore either. I mean, it's just – but here's my problem. Now, before I start with this, Jim was wrong, okay? Different – you can't do it. You just you just can't do it, period. When was this show taped? Uh, very recently. When, I mean, what, what is the time period between when it was taped and when it aired? Uh,
0: like literally they taped twice a month. um, So it had to be within that 14 days time span.
1: How many people would have seen this this clip before it went on air?
0: Oh, uh, that was another problem. I mean, you know, there should have been, I I bet they. well, there, obviously the filter system didn't work. I mean, no one said, Hey, we better not put this on the air. So whatever it was, it wasn't all Jim. It wasn't all Jim's fault. The NWA has to say, you know, Hey, we screwed up here too.
1: It's like, if you invite Don, like I said, I'm not, it's bad. And you know, it's, you, you can't, but I mean, this, how did this end up on the air? This seems like it should have been an easy catch. I think the guys who heard it and then said, Okay, that's okay, that's worse than what Jim did. Jim just said something off the cuff of Lonnie's shoes five hundred thousand times. He, he shouldn't have. But when they, they they hear it once and then they hear it the second time at the editing booth and let it go, and the NWA has the gall to give a lecture, they every bit as guilty, if not more.
0: I think it's a little galling that they gave a lecture at the same time. I don't agree that they're quote unquote more at fault because it was Jim who ultimately said it. And I, you know, I like Jim Cornette, as a matter of fact, before, uh, last night, I listened to the Jim Cornette drive through and it's been too long since I listened to it because Jim is is so much fun to listen to. Um, and he more than anything He sounded relieved that he no longer has to drive from Louisville to Atlanta once every two weeks. You know, he just didn't seem into it. And I think he was being honest. A lot of people say they don't care when they care a lot. I don't think Jim cares, to be honest with you. But, you know, one thing right before we started recording, and I'm talking literally like 15 minutes, I asked... uh, my good friend, a good friend of the show, someone who was on as the guest once, did an excellent job and is going to be back. Brandon Rice. I asked him, you know, hey, friend to friend, were you offended by this remark? And Brandon had the guts to say, yeah, I thought it was offensive. And I, and one thing I have no problem with someone saying that, I, you know, yeah, I think this is offensive. What I don't like. Is if you ask someone, well, are you offended by this? And they say, No, but someone else might be well, let them do the talking. That's just my take on it. But anyway, um, and like I said, the the best part about that show was Jim Cornette. And I think his his absence is gonna be lost, but if, if he's not gonna miss it, well, okay, you know, um, if he feels like his life is a better place without that, we're all better off. But to make the show a little more lively or a, a little more lighthearted, I am in tribute to Jim Cornette going to list what someone had as his top 10 one-liners of all time. Number 10, I started this low carb, low sugar diet because I refuse to be outlived by Vince Russo. Number nine, I can beat anyone, either female. Either male, female, animal, vegetable, or mineral. Number eight, eventually even a blind squirrel will find an acorn. I always like that one. This one's my favorite on the list. Number seven, if it was raining soup, he'd be outside with a fork. Number six: The green is the grass is always greener on the other side, unless Vince Russo has been there, in which case the grass is most likely dead. I like that one. Number five: I like to take advantage of the simple-minded because I can. Number four: I remember this one. Rick Steiner is so stupid it takes him an hour and a half to watch sixty minutes straight off a Rodney Dangerfield album. Uh, number three: I got this bad allergy. I'm allergic. I'm allergic to bullshit. Number two, this one killed me when it first aired. Hulk Hogan may be a household name, but so is garbage. And like garbage, it stinks when it gets old. And number one, the saddest moment in a child's life is not when he learns that Santa isn't real. It's when he learns that Vince Russo is. (laughs) For his own sake, I hope Jim Cornette one day just forgets that Vince Russo (laughs) exists. Do you guys, uh, Sean Heimberger, do you have a favorite Jim Cornette line? I use
2: uh, brought a tear to a glass eye a lot. Uh, <laughs> That's a great one. Uh, when, when I It's even funnier when you know people that have glass eyes. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of always like the one when he was on the Rick Steiner Ramble, when he was talking about uh, Steiner and Rotundo right after they turned, they won the NWA title show. Mike Rotundo, uh spent seven years at Syracuse trying to get a letter and had to have somebody read it to him.
0: <laughs> Sean Goodwin, how about you?
1: Uh, we talked about this before the show a little bit. It was never a line. I always remember Bobby Heenan's line. So Jimmy, it was always just this frantic kind of – and you were you were telling me, someone who's been around him, John, that, well, that's what he's like. You don't fake that. Okay? When you see Ric Flair, this hyper kind of energy, you, you don't fake that. You either have that or you don't have that. But I would guess the thing I remember – the lines I remember from him early on were uh, – well, one is the – I love the intros. The early intros for the midnight, you know, Love a Boy, Dennis, and Beautiful Bobby, and, you know, whatever, you know, Joel Gertner, years before Joel Gertner, and better. And I would also say um, his first promos with Dutch Mantel, I always thought were really funny back in Memphis. When Dutch oh. was messing with him, and he, he was straight, you know, he had the whole, you know, he was really playing up the mama's boy thing with the with the captain's hat. Oh yeah. And Dutch played him along, and finally cut him loose at the last second. He had a hissy fit.
0: I, I do remember that when Dutch was asking, him, "Do you like to get up early and watch yeah. cartoons?" And, yeah. and Jimmy's like, "Oh no, I, I like to get up early and watch Richard Simmons." <laughs> My <laughs> Oh yeah, no. it was. It was. It was from the Memphis studio. The whole thing was great. My no. personal favorite, and thirty-three years later, this still cracks me up. I was just laughing all day. It was when the Midnight Express injured Baby Doll, and the weekend after, it was right before Labor Day. Jim comes out with a rather sad face, and he says, uh, because of the injuries, Baby Doll uh, sustained due to, her, due to her clash with the Midnight Express, she will not be running in, t- in this weekend's Kentucky Derby. I, I mean, in '86, I was just a magazine mark. I did not get the newsletters or anything, but I totally got the sense right away that like he he had something in for her for real. And ten years later, we found out that yeah, he did.
2: It comes through when, when it's real, it comes through, doesn't it? when, when you can tell when somebody really feels something, yeah. you, you feel legitimacy and, and, and for a guy that really doesn't watch the current product anymore I, I think that's what it kind of lacks it, it's, you have that feel of legitimacy that these people really don't like each other, there may be something to what you're watching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can tell when somebody doesn't like each other you can, just like when, if you watch a movie. Sometimes you can tell when somebody's on a film that, okay, the, there's something going on behind the scenes, whether they're, whether they're, whether they're lovers off the screen or whether they, you can tell this person does not like them. It comes through, and when wrestling grabs you like that, that's the people that stick with you 35 years later yeah totally
0: i mean they had an angle it was on worldwide where jim Cornette. it was jim Cornette managing the midnights against dusty and magnum as the james boys and they were going to do a thing where baby doll came out jim jim saw her they start chasing each other around the ring instead of baby doll like you know chasing him around, she just walked up behind him and punched him in the back of the head Jim said it damn near knocked him out he figured it was one of the fans that did it so there was, you know, and it looked wrong when it happened, and you could tell those two just did not dig each other but anyway, um Today we when this show comes out, it is going to be November the 29th. And that is Jerry Lawler's birthday. And I I my favorite wrestler of all time is Ric Flair. And then there's like a five-way tie for second place. Um, Chris Jericho's in it, Jim Cornette and the Midnights are in it, Terry Funk's in it, and Jerry Lawler is definitely in it. He is an all-time great. I think if you cut his career in half, pre-WWF and post-WWF, you have two no-questions-asked Hall of Famers, and we're going to talk a little bit about Jerry Lawler. Sean, you're a big Jerry
1: Lawler fan as well. You could say three careers. Because he had that whole great massive heel run in Memphis in the 70s, and then he had the injury, breaks off, comes back, and he becomes the biggest face in the history of the territory back throughout the 80s. And then he has another career after the, with the WWF. I mean, the, he is he – I've always talked about guys who just get over, who just know how to get over. No matter what happens, you can put them in Mars. You could put Jerry – Lawler on another galaxy somewhere, and he's going to get over, because some guys are like that. I mean, I'm, I you had asked me you know, when we we're talking about this show to put together a list of Lawler interviews, angles, and matches, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't come up. I couldn't isolate anything. So what I end up doing instead was I just put together a timeline. I was joking earlier that you know I have four pages before the seventies, <laughs> but um, for the um, for the eighties, and just a timeline of things. I just. Just kind of jumped out at me from the beginning. I was going to mention a couple. See what you guys thought.
0: Yeah, and if man, you I, I like well. the idea. Uh,
1: 1972 is the first time I've ever seen anything with Lawler. This was the the Kazana film where if you look up uh, Crazy Hillbilly on YouTube, you're <laughs> going to get the Ron Wright speech where Ron and um, Big Jim has to scream at each other. It was also from this show that you will find the team if you find the full of the show. This is 72, I I want to say December, and it's the Kazana show from Knoxville, and uh, this was also the first time I could think of Jerry being featured on a show that there's still video of. And it was him, Jim White, and Sam Bass, and they were having a whole thing with uh, Tommy Gilbert. Now, Bo has told us that the show was anarchy. Ron Fuller has said that that the show, you could not promote anything off the show because they were just flinging things out and just... But I keep thinking that one show was good. Why? Because 23-year-old Jerry Lawler had it then.
0: I mean, yeah, I, I had that show on VHS like way back in the day, like early 1980s, and I couldn't believe how discombobulated, how chaotic
1: everything was. Lawler held the thing together. Lawler was like the defining piece, and that's why that show, Like, if you took Lawler out of that show, it's probably terrible. But he kind of – I mean he's doing this at 23. This is stuff that veterans do. But even at 23, he had that kind of feeling for how – you know in the ring, he still had some work to do. I was going to get to this later. He had a very different style in the 70s than you would see in the 80s. But as far as the promos and how he conducts himself, very early, you see star. You see a guy who just had professional tendencies to the way he did things. He picked things up with shocking speed.
0: He did, Sean Heimberger. Any thoughts on like very early Jerry Lawler that you could share with us?
2: Well, I ha- I have to admit I-, I don't. I'm not as familiar with early Lawler as you, as you guys are. But one thing that's fun about being an old wrestling fan today is you can watch this stuff on the fly. And when I watch Lawler's older stuff, what I'm so intrigued with is how a guy of regular size. Regular athletic ability gets over as the toughest guy in a territory. It's easy to the, the the lazy the lazy take is well, you know, he owned a chunk of it or whatever. But he was doing that well before he got a chunk of the territory. He just like like you guys said, he just there's something about certain people that emote star, and he had it. I mean, uh, the one match with Jack Briscoe that is bouncing around YouTube, you could could tell one guy is a legitimate college athlete, and the other guy is a guy that drew cartoons at Memphis State. (laughs) And they looked like they – it looked like a legitimate working match, not one guy. Sometimes in wrestling, and you guys know, you watch it and you say, if this was on the level, this guy would tear this guy apart. And even though Jack Briscoe could do that, it didn't emote that. That's what has always impressed me about Jerry Lawler. That's
0: actually a really good point. And, you know, speaking of Sean's point, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I, – I always love the Memphis promotion um, – and I'm glad Lawler stayed where he was and kind of anchored that promotion because I I think if it weren't for Lawler I mean that would have been one of the first promotions that you know hit the pavement after Vince McMahon expanded nationally but I think if Jerry Lawler had not homesteaded in Memphis the way he did He would have gotten over anywhere. And when I say that, I think he could have been WWF champion if they decided to go with Lawler instead of Backlund. I think he absolutely would have worked as WWF champion, uh, you know, despite not being big, despite not being having a great body because Lawler got over wherever he went. If he decided to go in another direction, he could have been one of the top stars uh, you know, in mid-Atlantic Georgia slash Florida as a guy who tra- traveled, and he would have been a big star in either role as either a babyface or a heel. He he could do both roles spectacularly.
2: John, I really wish you guys would do a show one time where it is top 100 wrestlers who would have been better selections than Bob Backlund in <laughs> 1978.
1: Uh, I, I don't know, 78, I'm fine with him. I have a problem when we get to the early 80s. I mean, I think we talked about
0: that on one show. Like, you know, who would have been? I'll go back yeah. and find it. Who would have been a better choice than Bob Backlund? I mean, at the end of the day, though, Bob that it worked. You know, it, it yeah. worked. He he drew even at the end when he was getting booed in like mid to late 1983. I mean, the place was full. They were a lot of people were booing him, but the place was full.
2: Well, they had a lot of stars in those cards too. They made it very easy. They they, they 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 is it was it that Bob Backlund threw the house, or did they draw the house around Bob Backlund? That that's two different manners of looking at it. Um, I, I remember watching one of the the shoot interviews all run run together after the years, where Larry Zabisco said uh, that when they put the belt on Backlund, that there was guys in the territory going what are you guys doing? You have Ken Patera right here. We'll turn him, ba- turn him baby face. He's got the whole uh, strength thing like Bruno had. We can do all these things with Patera has your baby face. And then if Bruno wants to come back, we'll run with Bruno versus Patera for the next year and a half. And uh, when I heard that, it was like, you know, I could have had a VA, like wham. It was like, wow, would that have made sense or what? But, you know, I, that's one of probably a dozen names.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, at the same time, I mean, you know, they did Backlund, and yeah, it, it did the brand draw or did Backlund draw? And the, the reality is, it's a combination of both. But they had that vehicle where you know you have Bob Backlund as WWF champion. You had Blassie Albano and the Wizard as okay. They're bringing these guys in to beat the champion. And it, it all came together and worked. I will say this. I mean, I started going to the Boston Garden in 81, and for the first, like, two years, Backland got a lot of cheers, and then the Snooker thing came along and the dynamic changed. I think by the time they took the title off Backland, they kind of needed to.
2: Oh, they kind of needed to a year earlier. Um, it was kind of – I always thought it was the difference between Singlet Backland and Tights Backland. Yes, Singlet Backlund was they needed it needed to go. Yeah, Singlet and the Crew Cut. Yes, the Crew Cut. And, and yeah. doing the, doing the wheels at ringside, you just got the feeling that instead of being to the people that like wrestling, instead of Bob Backlund is this all American boy, but he's an ass kicker. Well, instead you got the feeling of this guy is like your nerdy gym teacher. He may be a tough guy, but man, he's not cool. He was turning into that tag team, the Vaudevillians.
0: Oh man. <laughs> You guys are rough. I'm the one one who lived through the Backlund era. And I mean, I agree with you. As soon as Bob did that, you know what it was? We've talked about this on the show, but when superstar Billy Graham tore up the title belt and Bob Backlund was crying, literally sobbing on television the next week, he's had a week to get over this. That's when everyone, especially like in my high school Totally turned on him. Like he was no longer, he was never a cool guy. But like now, he's a super uncool guy.
2: He needs to
1: be a heel. He need to be a heel here so bad.
2: I, I was in high school during all that stuff, and you and I was the. I was the annoying little asshole that went through the hallways that rooted for the heel wrestlers, and I got such a kick out of walking through the hallway going, "Yeah, yeah. how can you guys read for Bob Backlund? Look at him. He cries when he doesn't get his way, <laughs> and, and you could just tell that he, the other Mark slash fans were looking at him, How the hell did he argue with that? He did, and, I mean, and from like- then on, it was a decline.
0: Yeah. And I, as someone who lived out here and went to the show, as I can tell you right now that that started it and uh, we were watching the midnight, I think I've told the story here before, forgive me if you've heard it. Um, We were watching the midnight W.O.R. show with a friend who was kind of not really a wrestling fan. And Bob's like, and the only way my grandmother knew I was champion was because I had this belt. And my friend goes, what is she? What is she deaf to? And that kind of just killed Bob. I, I thought that whole sobbing thing on Buddy Rogers Corner, like just murdered him.
2: I would say that that's probably legitimately the case. I, I, I even people that liked Bob Backlund couldn't defend that. Yeah, and he oh, right. str- he struggled with the most rudimentally, the most rudimentary things. He struggled with rolling around on the iron sheets, clubs, and he just really struggled with that kind of stuff. I, I don't know why they would put him in angles.
1: Seriously, <laughs> no, we could you're be right. talking about the Congress of Vienna, and somehow we'll end up bringing up Bob Backlund and complaining. <laughs> about the <situation.
2: laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, probably the- so.
1: We have this great show about Jerry Lawler and somehow we're still pissed (laughs) on poor Bob. (laughs) How did we get into Bob? All right, back to Jerry. 74. 74 was the Lawler year. That's when he went from he's going to be a big freaking star to, oh, my God, he's a big freaking star. Uh, This is what Dave Meltzer has called the greatest drawing year in Memphis history. Lawless started the year as a baby face for the and with a few with the infernos. This was for the sole purpose of getting him with uh, Fargo as a tag team partner. Jerry turns on him, turns heel. They have a run with uh, he has ends up having a run with Fargo. He has a run with a uh, Tommy Gilbert, who was great back then. He has a run with Ricky Gibson, which if you've only seen Ricky Gibson from like the early '80s, you haven't seen Ricky Gibson. Ricky Gibson, when his knees and he was healthy, could fly. I mean, he was 10 years ahead of his time back then, so he was great. And then they also started the run to the title, which included matches against The Sheik, Bobo Brazil Wrestling 2, Dick the Bruiser, Robert Fuller, Jerry Briscoe, and then finally the title match with Jack. And then clearly Jerry had his way at the end, and he has a series against The Mummy. <laughs> the Mummy. So uh, that I, was the well, well, well still... big – yeah, that was the year that all turned into a star.
0: Okay, Lawler was still a heel when he wrestled Jack Briscoe. Am I correct? Yes. Okay, now that's one. That's to me. That's wrestling one hundred and one. They knew. I, I. I. They had to have known that Lawler was going to be their number one baby face, the guy who took over for Jackie Fargo. But in order to have, I think for the most part, there are exceptions. If you have a guy like Lawler, if he's going to be your top baby face, you have to start him off as the top heel and make people want to see the turn. Sean Heimberger, please weigh in.
2: I think that's pretty dead-on correct. I mean, when you have a guy that people like, they don't like themselves for liking the guy. You have to build them up that they hate them, and then the guy becomes more and more likable in their eyes. And then that's where you make the big turn. I've always thought that when you shove somebody down somebody's throat, that's when they throw it back up at you. And they did that perfectly with Jerry Lawler.
0: I agree. Uh, Sean Goodwin, continue with the timeline,
1: please. Move up to 77, and we have the split off from Gulas. Uh, and Lawler ends up staying with, um, as you said you know, earlier on, Lawler had to stay for this to work. But Lawler stays with Jarrett, and they have an idea to start a feud with this uh, new tag team heel who is now a single uh, from Australia. And they were going to try him out as a baby face. They started off the year where uh, Lawler had, I believe, a feud with Rocky Johnson. And then the entire summer was was taking up uh, with Lawler Dundee Part 1.
0: All right. Now, one of my favorite wrestling stories is Bill Dundee claims that he flew from Australia to Memphis and basically had zero money in his pocket. He spent all of his money on that flight, on that trip, and he had to walk from the Memphis airport to the Mid-South Coliseum, or was it the TV studio, whatever. But that, that's
1: a heck of a story. They had almost immediate chemistry. This feud was uh, – it was, it, was, it was just – it was one of those things where it looks crazy on paper, but if a, some reason worked. It was just a situation that got horribly out of control. And the stipulations got ridiculous. They were, were cars. Bev got her head shaved. Billy's wife, uh, Billy, you know, Bill, Billy got shaved. Um, they, they had titles, whatever, and it was just every every uh, week there was like a new stip added on. They did this for about two months, which was a very long time. If you have to run this weekly, as opposed to like three weeks in the WWF, you're doing this every week. So you basically look at it eight cycles, and the attendance just grew and grew. And this was. This would kind of set them off into, you know, into their own thing. Um, but that chemistry with them is always there. One reason for that is, and I was reading something about today about Fargo, where Fargo and Jerry got along but didn't get along because they both realized they were in the same spot. Uh-huh. Same thing with same thing with Dundee and Lawler. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, they're jostling for that same kind of area. They look at each other as competitors, as you were saying, you know, sometimes when there's actual tension, it comes out and it adds a reality to it. And I think that was the case with Billy and uh, Jerry.
0: Yeah, I, I just never ever. I mean, I always saw Bill Dundee as, you know, the Robin to Jerry Lawler's Batman. Like, you know, whether it, doesn't, it doesn't matter
1: what we think. It matters what Billy thinks.
0: Uh, okay, I can go along with that. I mean, to me, that's Bill. You know, nothing against Bill Dundee. That's just him. You know, living in an alternative reality.
1: Well, sure, but I mean that. But that's how a guy like Billy Dundee, all five foot whatever he was, is successful. Very Because cool. that that's how he looks at things. I just saw them on a you know that Jerry Lawler uh, internet video thing he has from his restaurant, and he has Billy on, and you still felt it. <laughs> Billy's looking at the glass. He's like, That's great. I have to have a cup with your face on it. Looking at Walter. And they're just like riding it. And Jerry's like, Damn. But it's still, even now, it's still there. As Sean was saying, it, this realism is what I don't feel today, but what was there back then, especially in Memphis.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, and here, he, he, and here they are. I think they are both. I'm pretty sure they're both in their 70s, and they're still at it. So that says something. Sh- Sean Goodwin, uh, tell, tell us, tell us the audience a little bit about Jerry Lawler's initial babyface turn.
1: Well, I mean, okay, the first. There was a couple of minor ones before just to kind of set things up. Um, but I think the first time he he was a major babyface was uh, – I want to say it was 75. It was kind of after he had the long string, and even though he was the heel, it was still kind of cool seeing your guy because as will be said in Memphis, he was the home team there was yeah. no NFL team so seeing him kind of be, so they, they kind of turned him face a little bit in 75 um and then are you referring to the valiant run
0: um i believe so that was like mm, late 77 early 78 when jimmy valiant broke the bottle over his head yep
1: yeah two things happened in this era one was and another thing i wanted to bring up from this era too one was uh that jerry retired to pursue his music career <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, I just say it,
2: yeah.
1: and um, this, but uh, as Jerry Jarrett says, this was he needed an opportunity to get somebody, get Lala out of there, to get somebody else over. And the guy they were bringing over was King, uh, King James, who took to Memphis almost immediately, and he remained huge for the entire time he was there.
0: Okay. So what what was the – do you know specifically what the angle was where they they turned
1: Lawler? Uh, Where they turned him face? I don't remember what the angle was exactly when they turned him face. Uh, I I think – but it was one of those things where it it was like Dusty Rhodes in 74. He would had so many big wins that year that he was kind of – he almost had to turn him because, again, he was kind of defending his territory by having Briscoe and all these guys come in. Um, but the first time they really kind of t- was when they, as you said, when they smashed the bottle over his head. Yeah, that I- was the first when they. It, it didn't feel like they were turning him a baby face to just to switch things up, but they were turning him baby face to t- see how this is going to work for long term.
0: Yeah, if I recall correctly, and um, Bo James will correct us on the Facebook Ooh. page so I'm Totally Wrong, uh, Jerry Lawler was wrestling Harley Race. Jerry had kind of become a tweener, certainly the hometown favorite against the NWA champion. And towards the end of the match, Jimmy Valiant uh, hit the ring and broke a Coke bottle over Lawler's head, which is pretty severe in real life. And uh, down goes Lawler. And we had... We now have a natural babyface Lawler versus Valiant to heel matchup.
1: And another feud we would have later on this year, and I want to bring this about the different wrestling style with Lawler, is with Joe LeDuke. And it was in 78 that Lawler had as crazy a bump as you're going to see in 1970s wrestling, which is almost reminiscent of something you see today. And that's the one where Joe Duke. Pressed Lawler over his head at uh, the Mid South Coliseum and heaved him out to the floor. Jerry crashed through a table and ended up breaking part of his leg. And Jerry would do these crazy bumps back then, and until he got later, until a little bit later on, where he started to be a little bit smarter and kind of learning how to do you know less is more.
0: Sean Heinberger, you had to have seen that bump. Any thoughts?
2: I did, I did, and, and that was the stuff that I that that Lawler is almost underrated for it's like everyone's I shouldn't say everyone people remember more of the 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 quick quitted the quick witted and the quips and being in the ring and and against the which we'll get to shortly I'm sure that the Andy Kaufman's and the the goofy character wrestlers what they don't remember was was just before that run was when he was taken like uh I don't know if I've ever – I've seen it once where he was at, like at a high school gym or someplace and took a bump like from the top of uh, uh, of the bleachers and just rolled all the way down the steps. I mean that that's crazy stuff. I mean one bad – I mean think of all the people that fall down steps in real life and break their neck. Uh, that That's the kind of stuff that he did, that he's almost under – I guess what I'm trying to say is, is the people that remember him as an announcer and remember him from the babyface run forget just how good a talent he was for taking bumps that at the time were just insane.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, even I don't mean to get too ahead, but I mean, when Eddie Gilbert hit him with the car in the parking lot and Eddie said that, you know, he was full of adrenaline and he was just went a little bit too fast. And and Lawler just took that amazing bump and people are calling the cops saying Eddie Gilbert just ran over Jerry Lawler. It was crazy.
2: That looked so good, but it, it, it looked great, but it was kind of like an expose. It was like, okay, he hit him real hard, but you can kind of see where he jumped. And I, I didn't like that as much. I, I thought, and I remember I was watching wrestling when that was going on, and I liked the angle, and I liked both guys, and you could tell that it was legitimately, he legitimately hit him, but it, it, I, I didn't have a great feeling about it. It, it, it kind of, to me, had the feeling of being staged.
0: You know what? I, I respectfully disagree because I thought Lawler sell, sold it perfectly. He sees the car coming. He sees that he can't go, go to the left. He sees that he can't go to the right. He ain't going down, so he's going up. I mean, it, I think that might have been if I saw like some guy trying to hit me with a car, like that's what I probably would have done if I couldn't have gotten away quickly enough, which he kind of established.
2: Well, that that's, that makes sense to me. <laughs> I should have had you there when that happened.
0: <laughs> uh, everyone has different perspectives, but I'm, I'm sorry, Sean. I, I didn't mean to tr- take you off track. Let's talk about Jerry, Jimmy Hart coming into the coming into the process here.
1: Now, I'm not exactly sure this was how this was supposed to go down, but uh, Jerry in the '70s would always have. Now, Sam was uh, Sam was a good talker. Sam Bass. But uh-huh. after that, he had this guy named Mickey Poole, which I still haven't figured out what he's supposed to do. He was like the designated Hevers haircut guy. That's, um, that's, prob- that's
0: uh, probably all he was.
1: Yeah, uh, he got his head shaved in the Dundee thing in 70, uh, 77. So, but he always had of had some lackey. He was just some, some guy so Jerry could feed off of, you know, some, you know, some straight man or whatever. So now you have Jimmy Hart, who looks like – never says a word for months as he's with Lawler. He just kind of sits there and looks annoying. Lawler breaks his leg in a flag football game. Uh, I, I can only imagine how much this would, because they had this, they had, looked like they were about to have a huge year. And they brought back the, C, the, the CWA belt with that great Andy Warhol design. And he it, it, it breaks his leg. Now, Jimmy has to automatically, they roll the dice and make Jimmy the lead heel. And Jimmy lets out the, the now, now famous, what do they do? They shoot horses. In reference to Lala breaking his leg, which would basically pay everyone's rent for the next five years. Uh-huh. And that's – so Jerry tries to come back in 1980 a little early. Uh, he does a casket match against Carl Krupp where they both have to be in caskets. So he ends up putting himself back, and finally Jerry comes back January 81 against the Dream Machine, and he is crazy over as a baby face.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I remember Lawler lost some match on TV to like a rent a super destroyer or something like that, and he's apologizing at the desk for letting the fans down, and you hear people in the audience going, "No, King, it's okay." So he
1: was super over, and there was, and uh, there was no style change. By the way, he still cheated. It's just oh. the fans like, "Ah, hey, that's Jerry cheating." You yeah, know, well, he still did the thing with the chain where he pulled it out. Everything was the same. It just kind of like Ric Flair would do. Uh, he had the first series back was Dream Machine. He had a good chemistry with uh, Dream Machine. And then, then they uh, did a redo of 74 where Jimmy Hart brought in all these guys, Dory, Jerry Blackwell. And then finally, in comes Terry Funk for the empty arena match.
0: Yeah. And... Terry, uh, you know, I, I keep saying this one thing I was told before I was introduced to Terry Funk and spent like you know, three or four hours with him is don't bring up the empty arena match. But I liked it. I like the concept. I like the execution. I like the logic behind it. Uh, Sean Heimberger, you must have seen the empty arena match
2: years and years later i remember reading about it in the uh, after mags and was just amazed by the concept because you guys grew up in the wwf territory they would never have done anything like that every week it was john stud against joe murto and, and it, that, that somebody would have thought of that even as a kid looking at that going like who would think of something like that why would you want to have so it was and when i saw it it made so much sense. It, it came across as legitimate. These two guys hated each other so much, and Terry Funk wanted. He was, I don't. I'm not coming into your arena, into your stadium, into all the. Everything's against us when we come in here. Well, let's take away all those advantages. If it was just you and me and one referee, I could take you. That it came across so legitimate. I loved it.
0: I absolutely loved it. I mean, Sean, what are your thoughts on the empty arena?
1: Uh, t- Terry never drew a dime, did he? In Memphis. I wouldn't I mean, go that far, but he I, didn't okay, draw that's his- true. Exactly. But he wasn't as big a draw as you would think. And it wasn't because he wasn't try I mean, he was his usual great self. I just always have this theory that Memphis Jerry will do this where he brings on the stars every once in a while, but nineteen eighty one didn't really take off until Jerry joined up with the rest of the baby faces in what you know has been called the gang war, which yeah. was just Basically, and this is where what Sean was talking about happened. Jerry, after he breaks his leg, by the way, goes tumbling down the stairs, which <laughs> uh, that's, that's brilliant. But uh, but I always had a feeling that Memphis just prefer- we want to see our guys and in interesting stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and uh, I. By the way, I did see that footage from you know whatever high school it was when Lawler rolled down the entire bleachers, and it seemed like it would never end. Uh, Actually, I, mean, I think it,
1: was, it was. I think it was Louisville. I think it may have been Louisville Garden.
0: No, no, I'm not sure. I mean, that's a possibility. I, it it looked a little bit, it didn't look like Louisville to me, but I mean, I, I obviously could be wrong, but I'll be corrected
1: by somebody. I know that. So go
0: ahead. You never know. But, you know, I always say this is like the fastest 60 minutes of my week. And here we are. We've only got like 15 minutes left. I, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about. But before we, you know, <laughs> end our uh, singing happy birthday to Jerry Lawler edition, Sean Sh- Heinberger, what was your favorite Jerry Lawler
2: match of all time? Wow. You know, I, I, I'm probably the one person in the world that'll say this. I actually liked the Carrie Von Erich match in the superclass. I, I, I liked it. I, I thought it worked so well, despite all the snafus. That, you know, as a fan, you find out afterwards all the goofy stuff that happened. But I liked Lawler as a heel after all of this time on the national stage being a babyface. And I, I thought that worked a lot better than, in hindsight, it had any business working.
0: I mean, yeah, I I personally don't know anyone who dislikes the Super Clash match. I mean, at the end of the day, it it was a good match. And I always liked the way Lawler would, you know, he would explain this in Memphis that kind of You know, yeah, you know, um, he wouldn't flat out say, yeah, I'm the bad guy somewhere else. It's like, hey, you know, I'm wrestling my style and I don't care what Kerry Von Eric's doing. I don't care about what the referee's doing. And so he he would do heelish things in Chicago that he could explain away in a babyface manner on the Saturday morning show in Memphis.
2: My understanding is that 's not dissimilar to what the Funk Brothers used to do in Amarillo when cable first started to get there, and the magazines started to come out about they were heels everywhere and they would explain to the Amarillo audience, ah, you know we are what we are it 's not our fault that these people don't understand west texas people that that they're a, that they don't get who we are, so that 's how they were able to stay baby faces in their territory without changing what they did.
0: That and that is so perfect because you know that's obviously West Texas is a rather secular secular uh, part of our part of our country and especially back in 1979 1980. Sean, what was your favorite Jerry Lawler match of all time?
1: Uh, uh I can't pick between two. I'd say either the Texas Death Match with the Bill and Buddy Show. And, oh, that's great. Uh, and uh, Dutch, I, I, I like the because if you looked at an old, if you, look how an old time bare knuckle match, which is what a Texas Death Match is based on, is basically uh. an old bare knuckle match. That is how they used to be, where you, you know, they because it's got the thirty three falls, and part of it was because they were taking intentional falls for rest. Well, that's how they used to do it. I mean, yeah. that was realistic. So I, I like that, and I would say probably one of the lawler balkwinkle matches. They're just amazing. They just—they would come week in, week out, and have everyone convinced that this is the week <laughs> that Jerry's gonna beat Bach Winkle for the title. I know it hasn't happened the first 270 times, but this week—and they did it over and over again—is amazing.
0: Yeah, my—I have down. My favorite Jerry Lawler match was November 8th, 1982 against Nick Bockwinkle. Nick Bockwinkle was the AWA champion, but he was also the Southern heavyweight champion. And he won that title. And in order for Lawler to get that back, Lawler had to put up his hair against the Southern heavyweight championship. And the two of them had an amazing match. But one reason it was amazing, I mean, we give Lance Russell credit for being, you know, a great interviewer, a great kind of handler of the TV studio show. But Lance showed that he was every bit as good as Gordon Soley, every bit as good as Jim Ross when it came to calling this match. He made the match way better just by himself.
1: One quick side on that. What what's the brilliance because you you'd hear, why do you give Nick the uh, the Southern Belt? Because now Jerry has a win against him. So oh, now yeah. you can sit there and go back to, oh, Jerry can beat him. And now he can bring back Nick with the AWA Belt.
0: You're right. That is very smart b- booking. Um. I mean, if I were a fan watching at that time, I mean, I would have absolutely known that Lawler is not losing his hair, that he's going to win back the Southern title from Bachwinkle. But it drew a huge house, so there's nothing to complain about.
1: So what is the, uh, the event you wanted to speak of, John?
0: The event? Oh, well, first I would like to hear, uh, Sean Heimberger, do you have a favorite Jerry Lawler angle?
2: Ah, well, the easy one is the Kaufman stuff, but but I really liked the initial return against Jimmy Hart against the like you guys said the various parade of the parade of opponents every week, every week, every week. Uh, I like stuff like that because it gives the illusion of legitimacy of legitimate sport. It's, Hey, I can't do it with this guy. I'll trade for this guy. I can't do it with this. I'll bring this guy in. I'll draft this guy. And and stuff like that is the kind of stuff that really grabbed me as a fan. It was like, wow. Okay. I, I've always been a guy that liked it when you could look at wrestling as legitimate sports do. And that was something that made sense. I'm running the Cleveland Browns. I'm getting rid of this quarterback. I'm bringing this guy in. That is, and that I paralleled that to what Jimmy Hart was doing during that run. Oh, I can't beat Ken Patera. Okay, I'm bringing in the Colossus of Death. I can't beat the Colossus. He can't do it. We're bringing in Joe Laduke. I, I love stuff like that.
0: I mean I love that too and I, I miss that. I miss just kind of turning off your brain and saying, okay, you know, these these we are in a combat environment known as pro wrestling. And like I said, you kind of know it's not on the up and up, but you turn off your brain and you just enjoy these guys engaged in combat. Now, anyhow, I haven't done that in over 30 years, but I miss it. Uh uh your personal favorite Jerry Lawler angle, Sean Goodwin.
1: Well, first of all, you know the big boulder isn't chasing Harrison Ford either. Okay, <laughs> exactly. all you need all you need is plausible just deniability for 1 hour and you're fine. Um my favorite Jerry I I, I love the uh, I thought it was brilliant the dream match angle, which after a series of miscalculations ended up with Jerry losing his title to Jimmy Hart. Yes. <laughs> a lot of purists And it was completely running, plausible.
0: But it, it it all made sense. Like, yep. you know, you say, "Oh, Jimmy Hart beat Jerry Lawler," but if you take a look at the road they they took to get there, it all made perfect sense.
1: They did this they did they would do a similar thing with Kaufman where every time you saw Kaufman in the ring, he got his ass kicked. And he because, was he was running away and he couldn't run fast enough. Yep. Yep, that's right. So, uh, but the way they used him was realistic. It wasn't like David Arquette going in there winning. I mean, he was getting killed every time he stepped in the ring, as he should have been.
2: Well, oh, it's like the clip that I actually just watched a day or two ago on YouTube, where J.J. Dillon, the new king of the bull rope match, because he gets his rear end kicked all over the place by Dusty Rhodes, and two guys come in and knock Rhodes out, and Dillon drags himself over unconscious. And now I'm the king of the bull rope match. And now awesome. I so, so it's a plausible way of how someone that should have no chance did.
1: Yeah, and, and it,
0: it, it protected the sport. It protected the baby face, and it made the fans hate this Weasley manager even more. I mean, how dare J.J. Dillon claim that he's the king of the bull rope match after winning the match in that manner?
2: Plausible deniability is a good thing <laughs> yeah. in professional wrestling.
0: Exactly. My personal favorite Jerry Lawler angle at the end of 1985, they were doing two things. They were hot shotting the crap out of the product, yet everything made sense. Every detail made sense. Bill Dundee was the Southern heavyweight champion. And Rick Flair was coming to town to defend the NWA title, and bill Dun and, and whoever was the Southern Heavyweight champion was getting the shot. No one else was getting it. Bill Dundee was not giving anyone a shot at that title. He actually had a glass case made where he had the belt inside of it, which I think is one of the greatest uh, little nuances ever in professional wrestling history. So they do. So Jerry Lawler becomes depressed over this. He can't get a shot at flair because Dundee won't get, give him a shot at the Southern heavyweight title. So Lance Russell goes over to Jerry Lawler's house and he finds Jerry Lawler passed out drunk in the driveway, surrounded by beer cans and, and Lawler and Lawler's just like, you know, what am I going to do? I can't beat Bill Dundee. And he's like slurring and he's like going back and forth. Well, this airs and Bill Dundee is absolutely giddy. He is cracking up and to add to his fun, Jerry Jarrett had just lost a hair match. And Jarrett comes out in this ridiculous mask and costume calling himself the Hawaiian Flash because, well, I don't want to come out there with my head shaved. And Dundee, Dundee is just beyond happy. And when Hawaiian Flash asks For a title shot, Dungy just laughs and said, I'm in a good mood, brother. I'll give you a title match. And then when it's match time, you'll never guess who's in the Hawaiian Flash outfit and under the Hawaiian Flash mask. If you guess Jerry Lawler, who Bill Dundee thought he got rid of, he thought he had just sent Jerry Lawler on a lifelong drunken bender and he was wrong. And I I absolutely loved that angle.
2: That makes me want to look that up as we speak. Yeah,
0: they had a a great 1985, especially towards the end of it. Um, So anyway, there's one more thing I want to talk about. Uh, um, Sean Heimberger, you had mentioned that one of the all-time angles that never gets discussed, you just wanted to bring up uh, as part of this show. The floor is yours, sir.
2: I've always wondered, because when I was a kid growing up in WWF territory, they Angles were a rare thing, you know, one, two, maybe three a year if you were lucky. And they did one from, I believe it was Allentown, but it could have been Hamburg. I'm not great at keeping which one's which straight, where Greg Valentine suplexed Pedro Morales as Vince Morales, on the hardwood floor. and, and, And Morales sells it in like he has been, you know, shot. From with a high-powered rifle from above, and Valentine stomps off, and they wrestled a few times around the horn, but they never really pushed it on television. Like it's it wasn't like the McMahon territory at that time to have an angle like that and not give it the big push. It it I, it, it never made sense to me, and I still haven't got an answer for it. Perhaps you guys can can enlighten me. I just. It's like the angle that they put on there and never went anywhere with it. I mean they wrestled I mean Morales defended the intercontinental title against Valentine around the horn, but it didn't make sense to me why they did an angle with these two when normally they don't do angles like that and then just drop it
0: well let me ask you this like where where like where did you grow up seeing this because it might have been you know different town, like Baltimore was in a lot of ways, like a different town than Boston.
2: Well, well for here, you see I'm in Hagerstown and we are an hour from Baltimore and an hour from Washington. So we would get all-star wrestling on WDCA TV out of Washington. And we would get championship wrestling out of channel 45 WBFF out of Baltimore. So we would get both shows living here that other people would just get the, the, the Washington Show or the Baltimore Show. and they wrestled at the Cap Center, and I believe they wrestled at the Baltimore Civic Center, but it wasn't like a really big pushed feud the way you would think and like when Pat Patterson was hit by Mosca, it was all over the place this wasn't like that it was like okay this happened on tv and they're going to wrestle but we're not going to push it on television we're not going to really mention it all that much it was like okay they're wrestling he's defending it and that's that
0: all right because i i do have your answer because i got both the boston and new york shows um somehow this all started when morales and valentine got into it on tv they got into a match and it went outside the ring and Mor- and Valentine uh, did a rear suplex on the hardwood floor to Pedro Morales, and you're right, Morales sold it—you know, sold it like he was having a seizure, literally. And in both Boston and New York, they did sell it as a major injury angle. I remember Pedro coming on TV. And Vince is like, you know, Pedro, how's your back? And Pedro's like, you know, my my back is really hurt. It, it it's hard for me to drive my car. My back is so messed up. But I'm gonna get into the ring with Greg Valentine anyway. And they did the feud um, both in New York and Boston. They had the regular match, which of course ended in a. Bloody double disqualification. You got to remember, Valentine got a a huge push uh, during 81 and 82. And then they came back with a WWF style brass knuckles match, which was kind of a Texas death match, except both guys have their tape fist taped up. Excuse me. And your typical WWF Texas death match was really lame. It was a no DQ match that sometimes ended in a DQ or a countout or something like that. But in Boston and New York, they did get pushed heavily on television.
2: I just, I, 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 perhaps it's an old man's memory. I just never remembered them making that big a deal of it after that. I mean, I I know they ran the Cap Center with it, and they ran the Baltimore Civic Center with it, although I don't remember it was probably the co-feature to a back one title defense of whomever at the time. But I I mean, most of their angles on television were something that they really heavily pushed, and I just never remembered them pushing it as such.
0: You know what? It could be that you don't remember, or it could be that it just never got pushed heavily in Baltimore. Like I said, you know, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, New York, Boston could all be doing slightly different stuff. But yeah, in Baltimore and Boston, it got, uh, excuse me, in Boston and New York, pushed pretty hard, uh, you know, allentine would come out and do you know say nasty stuff about Pedro. and if you think you know if you think i hurt you last time wait till i get figure four on you you know we had like two months them going back and forth but anyway our time has expired um once again the fastest 60 minutes of my week sean heimberger thank you for coming on it was a great show man thank you
2: appreciate you guys having me no, we're well,
0: glad to have you on. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Sean Goodwin, uh, awesome co-host and does a lot of great stuff behind the scenes for stick, to, for stick to wrestling. And I also want to thank our producer, Lou Kippleman who makes it all happen. And thank you all for listening. Uh, oh, one last thing. Uh, Sean Heimberger was actually, he told me right before the show that he was on the Smoky Mountain Wrestling uh, Fan Week tour bus with both Brian Last and I back in 94 when we were going 25 miles an hour on an interstate in Tennessee because the bus was having mechanical problems. So thanks for filling me in. Uh, This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols beat Vandy. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Take care.